Welcome and bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Golden Boy. doing i have been so tired as of late have you been tired physically mentally tired but mainly physically (laughs) yes mentally but my goodness physically i have been so drained as of late i am here to tell you that if you are the type of person who pushes through exhaustion in order to be productive, if you are very concerned with getting things done in the name of productivity, I want you to please take a moment to rest. Just lay down and take a nap. Please, I am begging you, even if you don't view yourself as a nap person, at the very least, get extra hours of sleep at nighttime. Please, I'm begging you, I am begging us all to just take it easy, take it slow. I am very happy to report that I received a family Christmas card in the mail recently, and that card was from Patty's family. This is me telling her this for the first time. I'm telling you now that I got that card, and oh my god, the baby in that photo is ridiculous. They dressed up the baby as a Christmas pumpkin. A Christmas pumpkin. I'm just going to leave that to your imagination. I am not going to spoil it any further. I'm not going to go into any detail. No, this is a treasure. I'm... (laughs) I'm going to keep this forever. So thank you very much, Patty. And I am very excited to announce that Benny and his girlfriend are now officially engaged. Yes. Oh, my God. This is huge news. I don't check in with Benny and Patty nearly enough in this opening segment. So there has been a lot going on. Benny. Oh, my God. So congratulations. I could not be happier to hear about this news. I love a Christmas engagement. I I never thought about this before, but I love a Christmas time engagement. So thank you for letting me in on that, Benny. Thank you for sharing that news with me and Patty, and thank you for allowing me to share it with the rest of our listeners. Now, in other news, in other news that is related to the production of this podcast, it has also been quite some time since I talked about the tennis podcast. Long-term, long-time listeners will know that we have had a rocky relationship with the hosts of a tennis podcast. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to all of the episodes 
episodes that precede this one. You will get all of the information that you need. But uh, have you guys noticed, I have not talked to Patty or Benny about this, but have you noticed how that feed, that tennis podcast RSS feed, they have not been updating that at all. There has not been a new episode in weeks, if not, I don't remember. I can't remember the last time they would have uploaded an episode, but I feel like it's been weeks, if not months. Benny is nodding his head. I don't think Patty understood this because she tries to... God love her, and I, and I think this makes sense. You try to sort of keep yourself as far away from those two guys as possible. But Benny and I are obsessed. We are, I think we can say safely that we are obsessed. And yeah, Benny knows what I'm talking about. What is going on? Are those two okay? I know that we're not exactly best chums with those fellows, but I hope that their podcast is doing okay. It always scares me when podcasts go cold. When the RSS feed goes quiet, I tend to get a little nervous. So we're thinking about you, Tennis Podcast, guys. We're thinking about you. Okay, so let's get the show facts for Golden Boy enough of our talking. Okay, let's start talking about Golden Boy. Show me the show facts. Okay. Golden Boy was a 1965 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on October 20th, 1964 at the Majestic Theater and ran for 568 performances. The book of the musical was written by Clifford Odets and William Gibson. The show is actually based on Clifford Odette's 1937 play of the same name, which ran on Broadway for 250 performances. That play was adapted into a film in 1939 and was later revived on Broadway in 2012. The music for Golden Boy was written by Charles Strauss. The lyrics were written by Lee Adams. The director of the Broadway production was Arthur Penn and the musical director was Elliot Lawrence. The choreographer Donald McHale. He is notably the only black artist on the production side of things. Scenic design, Tony Walton. Lighting design, Theron Musser. There is no sound designer, but we do have a projections credit. Huh? I can offer you that. Richard Pilbrow designed the projections for the musical, and the costume design was by Tony Walton. The original Broadway cast included Sammy Davis Jr. Now, Sammy was first seen on Broadway in the 1956 musical Mr. Wonderful, which was not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Musical. He would later appear with Frida Payne and the Nicholas Brothers in the 1974 showcase, Sammy, before starring in a future subject of the podcast, that being the 1978 musical, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. The cast also included, the cast of Golden Boy, I should say, also included Billy Daniels, Kenneth Toby, Paula Wayne, Ted Beniades, Johnny Brown, Don Crabtree, Bob Daly, Jeanette Dubois, Lola Falana, Maxwell Glanville, Roy Glenn, Louis Gossett, Buck Heller, Taryn Miles, Benny Payne, Albert Popwell, Mabel Robinson, Jamie Rogers, Ralph Vucci, Charles Welch, and Lester Wilson. In terms of Tony nominations, we have, let's see, four nominations here. Best Musical, Best Actor in a Musical, Sammy Davis Jr., Best Choreography, Donald McHale, Best Producer of a Musical, Hillard Elkins. So again, four nominations, but zero awards at the end of the night, unfortunately. Let's talk about the plot of Golden Boy. Ha-ha! The plot of Clifford Odette's original play from the 1930s concerned Joe Bonaparte, an Italian-American violinist who pursues boxing despite his father's objections. Joe falls in love with his manager's girlfriend, Lorna, but when she refuses to make their affair legitimate, he loses control in the ring and winds up breaking one of his hands, thus losing any future as a violinist. Womp! Joe's anger and despair earn him a reputation as a brutal fighter in the ring, and in the play's final match, 
that she accidentally kills his opponent. Womp! Joe and Lorna ultimately run away together and die in a car accident. Womp! Fun times! The plot of the musical is largely similar to that of the play. Both are set in New York City, though the era of the musical has been updated from the 1930s to the 1960s. More importantly, Italian-American Joe Bonaparte has been swapped out for Joe Wellington, a black man living in Harlem. Joe views boxing as a way out of the neighborhood, and though his father disapproves, he chooses to align himself with a white manager named Tom Moody. Tom is eager to divorce his wife and marry his girlfriend, Lorna, who is also white. Additionally, Tom is eager for Joe to become more aggressive in the ring, and since it would appear Joe has feelings for Lorna, Tom sends her to Harlem so that she may inspire the boxer. Watch yourself, Tom. There's genuine chemistry between these two. As Joe's star continues to rise with each passing victory, he manages to capture the attention of Eddie Satine, a black promoter who can seemingly take our hero to the next level. Tom is instantly wary of Eddie and views him as a professional threat. But how can Joe turn down the promise of bigger matches and bigger payouts? On the night of his first high-profile fight under Eddie's guidance, Joe confesses his love for Lorna and gives her a choice. She can either leave Tom and capitalize on Joe's success, or remain with Tom and live a life of obscurity and misery. What a choice. Their conversation is cut short by the arrival of Joe's father, who implores his son to reconsider the path he has chosen. Joe hesitates if only for a moment. Is this actually what he wants? Could his father be right? No, it's too late to turn back. Joe enters the ring and secures yet another victory. Later that night, Eddie throws an obscenely swank party for Joe to demonstrate what the future will look like if they stick together. Tom panics. He believes the only way Joe will retain him as a manager is if Lorna convinces him to do so, and so he begs her, begs her to influence our hero once more. Lorna agrees, but when she meets with Joe, their passion for each other is undeniable. True, their status as an interracial couple will come with great risk, but it's a risk they are willing to take. Love conquers all. Well, not quite. A newly divorced Tom threatens to kill himself when Lorna announces her intention of leaving him. Said threat convinces her to stay with Tom and break her affair with Joe. When Eddie arranges a potentially dangerous fight with a boxer named Lopez, Joe agrees without hesitation. Why not? Boxing is all he has left. Well, not quite. Joe's father arrives before the match to assure his son he supports him no matter what. Newly inspired, Joe takes to the ring and is summarily beaten to a bloody pulp by Lopez. Things are not looking good. Joe gathers his last ounce of strength and knocks Lopez out with a mighty wallop. Victory! Sweet, sweet victory! Well, not quite. As it turns out, that mighty wallop wound up killing Lopez. Joe is thunderstruck. He never meant to kill anyone. How could he possibly overcome this moment? The show ends with a distraught Joe driving into the night and dying in a car accident. This may or may not be a case of suicide. I will never know because the copy of the script I requested from the library did not arrive on time. 
Well, it did, but I've been very tired as of late, as I mentioned, so let's just discuss the script next week, okay? We'll do that in the opening segment, I promise. Here's a side note for you. Various sources cite Golden Boy as the first Broadway production to feature an interracial kiss. So am I to assume No Strings did not feature a kiss between Diane Carroll and Richard Kiley? It's admittedly been a while since I read that script. I don't know. Who knows? For the purposes of this week's episode, I did not not have time to sit down with that copy of Clifford Odette's and William Gibson's script, but again, I will get back to you on that. I will sit down with it sometime in the next week. I did listen to the 1964 original Broadway cast album of Golden Boy, of course. I also watched a segment from the 1973 television special, Sammy, the Sammy Davis Jr. special, and that is a recreation of the fight between Joe Wellington and his opponent, Lopez, which I found to be quite interesting. You don't see that very often, musicals being recreated for the purposes of a television special, so that was fun. And I would also like to note that musical performances were not an element of the 19th Annual Tony Awards, so there was no Tony Awards performance from the cast of Golden Boy. I just wanted to let you know that. Okay, now that we understand what I did and did not watch or read, let's talk about the score for Golden Boy. We are going to begin with a little bit of audio from the song, Night Song. Where do you go when you feel that your brain is on fire? Where do you go when you don't even know what it is you desire? Listen, laughter everywhere. Hear it, life is in the air. And the town awakes Sounds of children calling And the squeal of brakes Music But a lonely song When you can't help wondering When you burn with this feeling of rage Who do you fight when you want to break out But your skin is your cage Okay, first things first. Sammy Davis Jr. is an icon, full stop. I don't need to say it, but I'm saying it. He began performing with the Will Maston Trio and his father, Sammy Davis Sr., when he was three years old. Three. He logged his first of 74 acting credits when he was eight. He was a member of the Rat Pack alongside Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Joey Bishop. He produced over 40 albums across seven record labels and reached the top 
of the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1972 with his version of The Candyman. Film and TV credits include Ocean's Eleven, Porgy and Bess, Sargent's Three, Batman, Fantasy Island, I Dream of Jeannie, The Jeffersons, General Hospital, One Life to Live, Laugh-In, All in the Family, Mod Squad, The Wild Wild West, Robin and the Seven Hoods, the 1969 film adaptation of Sweet Charity, and an episode of Charlie's Angels, for which he appeared as himself, and a Sammy Davis Jr. impersonator. He won an Emmy Award, the NAACP's Image and Spingarn Medal Awards, the American Guild of Variety Artists Man of the Year Award, and a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Does Sammy Davis Jr. have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? You bet your sweet babka he does. Did JFK prevent Sammy Davis Jr. from performing at his presidential inauguration because Sammy Davis Jr. had recently married white actress Mae Britt? Absolutely. Were Sammy Davis Jr. and his third wife, Altavis Davis, the first black guest to sleep at the White House? If so, were they invited by Nixon? Yes and yes. Sammy Davis Jr. was good friends with Nixon and even endorsed him at the 1972 RNC, though he would later denounce the president publicly. Sammy Davis Jr. also had a glass eye and converted to Judaism. He's an icon. My point is that Sammy Davis Jr. was already a star by the time Golden Boy premiered in 1964, and I have to assume Odette's Gibson, Strauss, Adams, and director Arthur Penn went out of their way to work with him on what the show would look and sound like. I mean, it's a star vehicle. You work in service of the star, especially when the star is black. The show is expressly about the star's race, and everyone on the production side is white, minus choreographer Donald McHale. If you're not turning to Sammy Davis Jr. on how to best approach this story, you are out of your mind. Now, having given our all-white writing team and their white director the benefit of the doubt, I have to say this opening number, Night Song, makes me cringe and squint. Sammy Davis Jr. is not the problem. He delivers this song as if it may be his last, like he has one shot at earning that Tony nomination before the curtain comes crashing down on his head. And hearing him quiver and glide through each silver note is a delight. The problem lies in the following lyrics by Lee Adams, quote, where do you turn when you burn with this feeling of rage? Who do you fight when you want to break out, but your skin is your cage? Quote, this is the only acknowledgement of Joe's race in Night Song. If you took it out, the number would basically be Lonely Town from On the Town, an ode to some universal feeling of glumness. The skin is your cage thing gets to me because if you're not paying attention, it may very well pass you by completely. And if you are paying attention, the phrase would hit you like a lightning bolt. Joe views his skin as a cage? Well, I would like to know more about that. If that truly is the case, then the whole song should be about how Joe views himself as a black man living in Harlem in the 1960s. That's important. That is how we should be starting off our evening. Who do you fight when you want to break out but your skin is your cage? Is not just another entry on a laundry list of complaints. Oh, you know how it is when you see lovers walking to and fro and there's laughter in the air and your skin is your cage. What a bummer, am I right? We don't need to go any further. You get it. I'm a black guy and my skin is my cage. Duh. It's a weird approach, is all I'm saying. Oh, his brain is on fire, and he's burning with rage. Why is that? Uh, because his skin is his cage. Duh, stupid. Moving on. 
Everything's great, couldn't be better. Up to my ears in debt. Rent's overdue, nothing but worries. How great can things get? Here I am, Thomas J. Moody, three-year-old suit from Robert J. Hall, Jesus H. Christ. Where am I heading? These lucky feet find the one street that's guaranteed to lead to a brick wall. Every old horse has to win sometime. When is it my big purse? Things have to change, gotta get better. They could not get worse. Look, Tom, I want to get married. Go home, Lorna. Give me some air. It's enough I got my wife on my neck. Everything's Great is a terribly redundant number in the wake of Night Song. We just spent four minutes with Joe as he complained about his sorry lot in life. Why am I now having to listen to Tom and Lorna complain about their sorry lots in life? We absolutely had to have two songs in a row that operate on this wavelength. You don't need two separate numbers to communicate that all of your main characters are facing dead ends. Write one song. Position Joe, Tom, and Lorna within a big opening number that establishes their frustrations while utilizing the ensemble. I'm picturing Skid Row from Little Shop of Horrors, essentially. Skid Row is a masterful bit of table setting, and yes, I realize no one from the Golden Boy team would have been able to use it as a point of reference, but Strauss and Adams should have known back in the 60s that one song can often do the work of many if you are doing your job right. Everything's Great is the number that should have been cut on the road to a tighter, leaner show, yet here I am listening to Albert and Rosie of Bye Bye Birdie as filtered through the lockhorns. Gee, life sucks. Uh-huh. Check, please. Beer and whiskey, whiskey and beer. Make sure head start again. Make sure your eyes are clear. Make sure waste your money. Turn your blind and dumb. Give me some. Fills your lungs with poison, makes your brain go numb. Give me some. Hey, come back here. Will you ever get smart? I doubt it. Tell me something's bad and I can't live without it. Pretty women, blue-eyed or brown. How they drive you crazy, how they drag you down Soon they're fat and happy, you're a worn-out bum Gimme some, gimme some Hoo boy, wow, we are really coasting on the innate charm of Sammy Davis Jr. with this gimme some number, and that bet is not panning out for anyone. Like, I sort of understand what we're going for here. It's a musical. The lead character is played by a huge star. Why not have that huge star interact with a kid? That'll be fun. If Gene Kelly could do it, Sammy could do it. And of course, Sammy could do it. He could do it if the song supplied strong jokes and enough time to establish a rhythm with his 
co-star Taryn Miles, but Gimme Some is an aimless bore that feels long at just under two minutes. Kids trading wisecracks with stars should not be a substitute for well-written, genuinely funny material that pops without the aid of a star. I was too charitable. These are not wisecracks, and this is not banter. This is barely a conversation. Stick around, things are gonna happen. Fireworks, stick around and see. Watch me in the arena eat Cracker Jack while I'm smacking some hack for a fee. Stick around, you can hold the basket while I shake that money tree. And of course, in certain cases, a dark horse may win some races. Stick around, lady, and see. Stick around and you'll see some action. Who can tell what the kid will do? Here I go after diamonds and I'll come back with a sack full and toss you a few. Stick around, you can shine my trophies. Lead the cheers when they shout for me. There won't be nobody hotter. I want the whole enchilada. And if I come up winner, Brotherhood Week, take me to dinner. Stick around, lady, and see the boy who's gonna fight. See that boy start moving right. Stick around, lady, and At a mere 90 seconds, Stick Around feels more like a passing musical thought than a fully realized number. And that's disappointing, because it's clear Sammy Davis Jr. is having a lot of fun, and he deserves the chance to run wild. This is a crucial moment for Joe and Lorna, with the former going out of his way to impress the latter. He is selling her on the idea that he is this high-caliber, high-octane guy who is worth her attention. You don't bang out a pitch like that in 90 seconds, especially if you're a boxer who adores adulation, you stretch it out. You leave no stone unturned. Stick Around should have been a mammoth marathon of a showstopper that left Sammy and his audience breathless. It should have been a feast, not a snack. And in the end, I was left wanting more. Don't forget the cultural life on this here street. Richer than the outside world suspects. Hawk the cheerful patter of all those junkies' feet And the soothing tones of Malcolm X Each night we hasten to our spotless subway Riding home is always such a treat Oh no, Joe, don't forget my beautiful old ancestral home An angel named it home H is for the heroin they sell here. A is for the alleys where kids play. R is for the rats that run pell-mell here. And L is for the landlords far away. E is for the endless cleanup projects. And M is for the moldy roofs above. Put them all together, they spell Oh, yeah. You nitwit. 
the place that white folks, white folks think we love. I'm not saying black people living in 1960s Harlem would not have had complaints about the neighborhood, but you have to start from a place of skepticism when dealing with an all-white, all-male writing team, a team led by a white director, no less. Consultation with and guidance from Sammy Davis Jr. aside, these white guys were in the ultimate positions of creative power, and I don't appreciate how they use black characters to paint Harlem as a rat in infested hellhole. There is a lot of talk regarding rats and generalized vermin in Don't Forget 127th Street, and after a while I had to call malarkey on the whole enchilada. Malarkey enchilada. So let me get this straight. All of the black people who exist in Golden Boy feel zero pride when it comes to living in Harlem. They don't have one positive thing to say about it. No way, man. This song is steeped in irony. We're saying, oh, Joe, you're really going to miss living in Harlem because there is so much to miss. The rats and the vermin, the filthy subway, Malcolm X. But this is all said in jest. You come to see, you'll come to find, as we actually despise everything we just mentioned, especially Malcolm X. Ooh, what a stupid pest. Ooh, white people are always talking about how much black people love Harlem. Well, if you're paying attention, you'll understand we do not love Harlem. So there. Yeah, I'm sure all of this tracks. White people writing black characters who hate Harlem along with the white people who assume they love Harlem. Sure, yeah. Lorna's here and she's gonna stay. Lorna's here, and baby, she won't go away. All my talk of leaving is only talk. I'm much too dumb to take that Just try Lorna's here forever You big ugly guy I was taken aback by Paula Wayne's performance as Lorna because it was not at all what I expected. I'm not sure if this says more about me or the state of the industry, but I expected Sammy Davis Jr. to be paired with an ingenue, someone young with a light, bright soprano voice. Paula Wayne was certainly younger than her co-star by a solid decade, but this is hardly the voice of a dainty, standard-issue ingenue. This is Elaine Stritch, Katherine Hepburn, Lauren Bacall, and Kathleen Turner distilled down to a glass of whiskey. Sonorous, scratchy, tough. In retrospect, this makes total sense for the character. Lorna is not the new kid on the block. Lorna is no greenhorn. She has been worn down by life and its shortcomings, not to mention the empty promises made by guys like Tom Moody. The role and the voice go together like a hand in a glove. Is the song Lorna's Here particularly effective or memorable? No, but I enjoyed listening to Wayne croak her way through it regardless.
Can I be what I want to be? Yes, you can. Can I get what I want to get? Yes, you can. Can I have a car with a built-in bar? Color TV and a Playboy key. And a hundred shares of AT&T. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Control chair, imported boots. A calendar watch and custom-made shoes. Photograph in the daily news. Yes, you can. Uh-huh. Ten dollar ties. Yes, sir, how many? You'll get to call Lenny Bernstein, Lenny. Lunch at Shaw's, pick up the tab. The doorman saying, may I get you a cab? Cab? Thank you. Bartender asking, what do you have? Yeah. Charge account at Saks Fifth Ave. Diamond studs, finest grade. And every single album Ray Charles ever made. I like This Is The Life well enough, especially when it morphs into the buzzy rat-a-tat list song you heard a moment ago. That section. I like that section. Lee Adams has a clear affection for the list song, having produced several over the course of his career. They tend to involve brusque declarative statements made by men. Plain shirt, five foot ten, slick hair, fancy watch, steak for two, pay the check. Maybe I'm... Maybe I'm being a little loose with the definition of a list song. Work with me, work with me, walk with me. I suppose I'm thinking of a number like dot 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 from It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Or the Daddy Warbucks portion of NYC. Too hot, too cold, too late, I'm sold. These are inherently blunt, descriptive, materialistic songs. And This Is The Life is no different. Joe is vibing in the face of 101 glittering promises. He wants everything, cars, dames, VIP access. Why, he even wants to call Leonard Bernstein Lenny. Hold on a second. (laughs) Is that actually something Joe would want, or is this another example of white guys speaking through a black character? I'm not saying a black boxer from Harlem couldn't possibly care about Bernstein, but it does seem like something Strauss or Adams would absolutely care about. Hell, for all I know, Sammy Davis Jr. came up with that himself. But no matter the source, it simply doesn't align with the rest of Joe's wish list. We're making a reference for the sake of being cute. Much like when Sammy referenced is Dean Martin of the Rat Pack in a later number, a number we will not be covering today. This isn't a cabaret act, gentlemen. Let's ride for the character and be consistent in our characterization. While the city sleeps, while the streets are clear, there's a life that's happening here. The tourist dreams in his Statler bed. Here we're living those dreams instead. The clan has gathered, put a stand, gets record on. Send the judge for pizza. When the last anchovy's gone, then it's done. While the city sleeps, when the air is still, life can bring you that secret thrill. While the city sleeps, while the city sleeps, I don't mean to push Lee Adams around. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I find his lyrics for While the City Sleeps to be unintentionally hilarious. To review what you just heard, quote, While the city sleeps, while the streets are clear, there's a life that's happening here. While the tourist dreams in his Statler bed, here we're living those dreams instead. Hey, the clan has gathered. Put a Stan Getz record on. Send the judge for pizza. When the last anchovy's gone, then it's dawn. Quote, that line about the judge going out for pizza kills me. It kills me. I immediately understood I had to write it down because it is highly evocative and should probably be inducted into the Library of Congress just on its own. <laughs> just those lyrics. While the city sleeps is supposed to be a pitch from Eddie on the value of his night owl lifestyle, sort of a my time of day from guys and dolls without the explicit romance. It's a seduction of sorts. So why in the world is Eddie talking about judges going out for pizza? Hey, my boy, yo, my boy chick, listen. While you're with me, you can have pizza whenever you want. Yeah, never run out of pizza. You ever run out of pizza, Jojo? Annoying, am I right? You think to yourself, hey, say, I want more pizza. I should go out and get another pizza. But the idea of putting on shoes, it's like to die. Ah, no worries, my friend. When you're with Eddie Satine, the judge goes out for pizza. That's right, Jojo. The judge is my little pizza punk. I absolutely own this town, at least when it comes to pizzas and judges. Can we go back and re-examine this line from Lee Adams? Quote, Hey, the clan has gathered. Put a Stan Getz record on. Quote, I'm sorry, the what? The clan? This is a scene between two black men, and one of them is referring to his pals as a clan. Hey, the clan has gathered. Uh, that does, um, that does not sound like a good thing. <laughs> uh, Lee? Lee, are you listening? Here's a salient bit of trivia for you. Frank Sinatra initially referred to the Rat Pack as the Klan, but Sammy Davis Jr. objected. Why? Because it reminded him of the KKK. So why are we using it here? Oh, I'm sure lots of people used the word Klan back in the 60s. No, they did not. They most certainly did not. Colorful copy, Mr. Drake. Why, sir, you don't know how colorful I done been. When I was very young, brand new upon the scene, had no experience. That's right, I was green. Then I grew up a bit, found out a thing or two. Sometimes I'd get unhappy. In short, I was blue. As far as politics goes, I never turn red. I'm smarter than you might think. And every time I've been told, boy, you're good as gold, say I'm just tickle pink. I've tried all sorts of shades, put them to the test. But I look at myself and black Suits me best 
colorful is an odd bird of a number. On the one hand, it has this jaunty sound and lightly clever wordplay that I sort of associate with schoolhouse rock segments. Ooh, I'm tickled pink, solid gold, green with envy, positively blue, colors, baby, colors. On the other hand, Strauss and Adams appear to be interested in delivering a song with bite, but not too much bite. Maybe more like a nibble? Do we want Joe to talk about being black? Of course we do. Do we want Joe to demonstrate a certain degree of pride when it comes to his identity? Sure. Do we want Joe to thumb his nose in the face of those who would seek to denigrate his identity? Absolutely! But let's not have Joe get, like, worked up about it, you know what I mean? We don't need anyone to be reminded of that obnoxious Malcolm X. This is a musical, so let's tuck that already mild commentary within a cheeky recitation of Crayola colloquialisms and call it a day, shall we? <laughs> a totally nice, hearty, meat and potatoes love duet. The whole thing sort of slid out to the back of my brain five minutes after I heard it, but that's all right. The world is filled with songs and my brain only has so much room to spare. I was a little worried the song wouldn't turn a corner and evolve into a proper love duet, but those fears proved to be totally unfounded. There's Lorna coming right in at the halfway point of the track, sounding like a row of chimneys stuffed with pine cones and cigarette butts. My favorite time of day is night. How I bled for you 
skin for you no more oh I worshipped you that you can't ignore but I ain't your slave no I'm standing up Oh, well, I'm standing right up I ain't on the floor Ain't on the floor I ain't bowing down no more Quote, how I bled for you, no more Shed my skin for you, no more Oh, I worshipped you, that you can't ignore but I ain't your slave no more, quote. Could we not, maybe, could we maybe not have Joe refer to himself as a slave? There is plenty of emotional material to mine from Joe and Lorna's failed relationship. And if you want to explore their interracial dynamic, fine, I am all for it. That should be a priority. But I don't need to hear Joe describe himself as a slave in the context of love. That is idiotic and offensive, and I'm not sure why anyone involved in Golden Boy thought it would pass muster. Yes, I am I am aware, I am aware we're talking about the mid-60s. A different time, different conversations, blah, 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 blah. But tiresome, reductive, racist bullshit is, and has always been, tiresome, reductive, racist bullshit. Black people have always understood that, and to this day, not nearly enough white people are willing to accept that. You shouldn't need the gift of hindsight to realize in the moment that what you are writing is a crock of bunk. Between this moronic slave reference, the use of the word clan, that fairly insipid colorful number, and this show's concentrated teardown of Harlem, it's safe to say this is not a case of scattershot, ill-informed microaggressions. There is something acutely wrong here, and that wriggling ball of wrong sits squarely at the heart of the writing team. You do not know how to write about or or for black people, Strauss and Adams. You are bad at it.
track on the OBC album is designated as Finale, parenthetical, The Fight. It's a purely instrumental sequence that was recreated for the purposes of the 1973 Sammy special. We mentioned that earlier. And I have to say that sequence is pretty damn good. Sammy Davis Jr. looks decidedly older in the special, of course, as well as perilously thin. And watching him crumple in the face of his opponent's blows is both captivating and upsetting. This must have been very difficult to realize and perfect on stage between Donald McHale's intricately interwoven fight and and dance choreography, and having to ensure that choreography lines up perfectly with Strauss's piece. It's an impressive feat, I gotta say. Okay, that's all I gotta say, actually. Let's now hear a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. What happened here? Well, let's see. The 5678 Coffee Corporation was founded in April 1873 by Hiraconis Meinhardt, oh, a devout Catholic who began his career with nothing more than a single bag of beans and a humble pushcart. Clara, we are standing in the very spot where Mr. Meinhardt sold his first cup of coffee nearly 150 years ago. Isn't that fa- Clara, stay away from the ponies, honey. Come here. Come here and pay attention to me. Listen to me from the pamphlet. Now, Kieronicus Monhart found great success in the coffee business. In less than 10 years, that's a decade, Clara, he had managed to build over a dozen warehouses throughout the tri-state area. Clara, did you see the statue they erected in Mr. Monhart's honor? My goodness, legend has it the statue appeared overnight, and the identity of the artist is unknown. Ooh, how strange and spooky. Spooky! Clara, stay away from the horses! Stand by me, darling. Come over here. Listen to me. This is an educational experience, all right? Now, it says here that Mr. Meinhardt died after he was disemboweled. Oh, my goodness, by a trolley car. His neighbors did make a valiant attempt to remove him from the tracks before the trolley car arrived, but Curonicus refused to budge. He was heard to say, quote, I know too much and have done too little, quote. Oh, it's unclear what he was referring to, but his house exploded shortly thereafter. My God, this man lived a lot. Clara, stay away from the bison. Because you're just going to name all of them, and then where am I going to be? Where are we going to be? We don't have room for bison in Winston-Salem, sugar. Clara, do not, do not get on top of that bison. Clara, do not run away from me when I'm talking to you. Clara, do not put a hat on that bison. Do not put a hat on that bison. Clara, do not do the opposite of everything I tell you to do. How many times do I have to tell you? That is not funny. That is not a funny conceit is what I'm trying to say. It's contrarian. It is merely contrarian. Clara, contrarianism is not comedy. Clara, yes and, honey. Yes and! What happened to your improv education? Ugh, well, fuck. Final thoughts regarding Golden Boy. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting how a lot of musicals that are A, written by white people, and B, feature black characters, conclude with those black characters dying? And it's always because those black characters got a little too big for their britches in the ambition department. In Golden Boy, Joe dies with a broken heart and blood on his hands, and all because he refuses to listen when others tell him to slow down. Slow down, Joe. Can't you see the world and its systems are not on your side? You want too much? 
This is absolutely the lesson Joe learns, by the way. He wanted too much and moved too fast. He didn't know what was good for him and the world put him in his place. Look to Icarus, my dear Joe. In Once on this Island, if you will recall, T-Moon allows herself to waste away while in pursuit of love. She refuses to listen when others tell her to slow down. Slow down, T-Moon. Can't you see the world and its systems are not on your side? You want too much. The ending of Once on this Island would have you believe T-Moon's death is actually a good thing, actually? Actually? Because it inspired others to do better, act better, be better, but that's a bunch of bullshit. She wanted too much and moved too fast. She didn't know what was good for her, and the world put her in her place. Look to Icarus, my dear T-Moon. In Ragtime, Colehouse Walker is shot to death for railing against and threatening the world and its systems. People try to warn him. Slow down, Colehouse. Can't you see the world and its systems are not on your side? Oh, you do. <laughs> oh, well, uh, this anger, Colehouse. Ooh, the anger, it's not productive. You want too much. Colehouse eventually backs away from his radical rhetoric. God knows he tries to avoid death, but it's too late. Black characters do not get second chances, Colehouse. The ending of Ragtime would have you believe Colehouse's death is actually a good thing, actually, actually, because it inspired others to do better, be better, act better, but that's a bunch of bullshit. He wanted too much and moved too fast. He didn't know what was good for him, and the world put him in his place. Look to Icarus, my dear Colehouse. Dear fellow white people, stop tossing black characters into freshly dug graves in the name of teaching me a lesson. Also, stop telling real-life black people that they want too much and they move too fast. Shut the fuck up. Shut the Fuck up, keep it, keep it, keep it, keep all of it. This includes Miss Saigon, of course. <laughs> Miss Saigon is very much within this same realm, this same subgenre. Now, for your edification, in 1965, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Fiddler on the Roof, and the additional nominees that season were Half a Sixpence and Oh, What a Lovely War. I am not going to take Fiddler on the Roof's Tony Award for Best Musical and hand it to Golden Boy. I will not. I cannot. No, no, no. Fiddler on the Roof, you are going to keep that medallion, and I highly doubt I'm going to take it from you in the future, so it can be given to half a sixpence, or oh, what a lovely war. I, I think we can safely say, you could just keep that. Don't worry about it. Fiddle on the roof. You're a wonderful show. Just keep it. It is now time to rank Golden Boy against all of the other musicals we have covered here on the podcast. As a reminder, if you follow us on Twitter, at MusicalManPod, go to our like section. The first tweet there will take you to a Google sheet. You'll go to the second tab. You'll find that complete ranking. I am going to put Golden Boy in our number 68 slot, that is between Sugar at number 67 and Groundhog Day at number 69. So thank you very much, Golden Boy. I see that you were trying for something, but uh, you're going to have to be in the lower tier for now, at least for now. Okay, so moving on to show-related ephemera, we have three yummy items for you. Number one, this is audio of Sammy Davis Jr. ad-libbing during the filming of a 1974 ad, a commercial for Centauri Whiskey. Take it away, Sammy. Thank you. 
うん
Aha! Okay, so we have landed in the 2014 season. This was the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical back in 2014, and it ran for a total of 905 performances. Do you know what it is at home? I bet you do. The name of the show is A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. Yes, so that shall be the subject for our episode next week. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can donate $1, 3 5 or $10 a month. Let's say you donate $1 a month via Patreon. What do you get as a $1 a month patron? Well, you get Monday early access to all of our main feed episodes. You also get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Thank you so much for donating at least $1 a month. Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Marques, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get access to all of our bonus episodes. Here's what we have covered via our bonus episode series. The 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage production Emma, a review of Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, but also Hamilton via Disney+, Plus, Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. You also get Season 1, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, and you also get access to M3, The Movie Musical Man. That show is returning this month on December 23rd. For the purposes of that show, we watch and talk about trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme, and this month's theme is the Holly Jolly Trilogy. We're going to be talking about the 1970s musical Scrooge. We're going to be talking about Mrs. Claus, starring Angela Lansbury, and then we're capping off that trilogy with Anna and the Apocalypse. It's true. So if you want to get in with that series, donate at least $1 a month. You'll get that episode on the 23rd, plus all of the episodes we have released in the past and future episodes. Yes, yes, yes. Let's move on to the $3 a month tier. What do you get as a $3 a month patron? Well, you get everything I've already described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You also get season one, 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast. Hello. You also get a special episode all about season one of Julie and the Phantoms. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already described. Plus, you get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You get to pick the musical we talk about. You also get All I Ask of You season one and season two that is currently running. And that is a show, an advice show, hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and it's dedicated to all of the villains of musical theater, the so-called musical theater villains, I should say. You also get access to our Broadway in Chicago review series and Shout About It, Volumes 1 and 2. That is a collection of 5, 6, 7, 8 ads and musical shout-outs from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus The Snub Club Season 1. That is 12 episodes of a series for which we discuss Broadway musicals that were snubbed. They were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It's true, you get all 12 episodes of that first season. If you are listening to the show via Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write up a nice five-star review. We are still hoping to get to the 65-star review goalpost. If we can get there, I will release a special 
special episode in the main feed all about Disney's Zombies franchise. You can stream the show via Spotify, Stitcher, or Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod, and you can email us at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny. Not in the booth, technically. I think I said that last week. Thank you to Patty and Benny for your wonderful, enormous, endless support. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous music. Ho-ho! You know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, a and good night. <laughs>